This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Tuesday, 20th of December. Here's what we've got for you today. We're going to kick off with a couple of big news stories. First of all, new UAE growth forecasts from the UAE Central Bank. We'll give you the numbers. And Elon Musk, he is about to be ousted as CEO of Twitter less than two months after he bought it. What else have we got? Loads of questions today about new emiratization rules. Talib Hashem, Emirati Entrepreneur has joined us in the studio. And finally, on that Twitter Elon Musk story, doing a deep dive on it with Mazen Nahawi, founder and CEO of the marketing company Karma, based here in this region. All that to come, but first up, economics. But will he take his sink and go? That is the question. This is Elon Musk, and he's been told to go by Twitter users. The backstory is about 36 hours ago, he put a poll up on Twitter saying, do you want me to stay or go as CEO of Twitter? I will respect the results of the poll. Millions of people took part. 58% said, yes, you should go. 42% said, yes, you should stay. It's not close. There's no hanging chads here. He lost. The question is, what's he going to do next? The silence is deafening, isn't it? Because on his Twitter feed, and you're hitting refresh on an almost minutely basis, but he's retweeting stuff about... Solar panels. Business blue at Twitter. Stats on the Twitter World Cup. It's not what we're waiting for. Let's hear from Elon now. This is him talking in happier times when he was considering his takeover of Twitter. Speaking in April at a TED conference about why he wanted to buy Twitter and why... The purpose, if you like, the mission behind wanting to buy Twitter. My, my strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, 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 and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. But you've, um, you've described I, yourself. I, I don't care about the economics at all. You, okay, that's, that's cool to hear. You, it, this is not about the economics. He wasn't kidding, was he? No. <laughs> we thought that was just rhetoric. Oh, no. Um, look, who's going to take over if he does step down? So there's a, there's a, apparently there's a team, um, a fix-it team that he assembled for Twitter when he took over. And there's three people on it. Jason Calacanis, who's an investor and podcaster. Former PayPal exec David Sachs, part of the PayPal Mafia with Elon many years ago, and also uh, Sriram Krishnan, who is described as a Musk loyalist. He's with Andreessen Horowitz, the private equity firm, or the, um, uh, the, the, well, the investment firm in Silicon Valley. But he's also a former Twitter executive. So those are the insiders who think they might be able to take the job. Elon says... No one wants the job who can actually keep Twitter alive. There is no successor. Well, Calacanis, who's on the inside, did his own Twitter poll saying, I want the job. Can I have it? (laughs) The Financial Times says it should be Sheryl Sandberg, who, of course, effectively ran Facebook's operations for about 10 years under Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, The other left field option is, and um, CNBC points out, Elon has a track record of moving people around his empire. So people move from Tesla to SpaceX. Even though they're different industries, he sees qualities in them that are transferable. So he may have a trusted lieutenant 
or leader in SpaceX, for example, who he wants to parachute into Twitter? Let's see. Let's see indeed. It's been a very long 53 and a half days with Elon at the helm of uh, Twitter. Great for headlines. Um, not so great for uh, Twitter Inc., some would argue. But I'm keen to know what it means for us here, because Twitter in Arabic in particular, in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, other countries, is a really important platform. You know, he talks about it being the, you know, is it the town hall or the public square? Mm-hmm. And, and there is a bit of that. Tom, you're speaking to an expert in just a few minutes' time, aren't you? You've got Mazen Nahawi joining us live. Yeah, he's going to be joining us at uh, 7.20 this morning. Mazen Nahawi, founder and CEO of Karma. Um, who keeps a keen eye on all things uh, tech, all things social media. So we will be putting these questions to Mazen uh, shortly. If you've got any questions, feel free to get them into us now. You can text us on 4001. We will also be seeking an economist's opinion on the latest projections to come out from the UAE Central Bank, having a look at what 2023 has looked like for the UAE economy and what 2023, sorry, 22 has and what 2023 could um, it's the latest projection in a line of projections, which are, to be fair, not that different from each other. That's right. UAE Central Bank overnight raising its forecast for this year. And it's, it's still a forecast because we've got 10 days to go to 7.6%, previously 6.5%. That is consensus. IMS predicting about the same, 7-ish percent. Emirates MBD predicting about the same uh, 7%. Should we hear briefly now from Katija Hack? She's the chief economist of Emirates MBD. Uh, of course, uh, given uh, her role, she and her team have been looking at this one very, very closely. Uh, we will indeed get Katija's thoughts from it now. The UAE has seen strong economic growth in 2022 with oil production rising sharply and non-oil sector growth also boosted by uh, strong domestic demand, uh, investment and the continued recovery in global trade and travel from the pandemic. We estimate oil and gas GDP grew by around 13% this year and the non-oil sectors by around 5%. But I would say there's probably upside risk to those figures. For next year, we also have a 3.9% GDP growth forecast for the UAE, mainly because we don't expect oil and gas GDP to rise as much as it did this year. And we also expect the non-oil sectors to slow on the back of higher interest rates and also slower global growth. And that is Katija Hack, Chief Economist from Emirates MBD. As Richard said there, those uh, numbers pretty much in line with what we're hearing from others. Uh, the ICAW um, has come out with its uh, forecast. It did when we were up in Abu Dhabi the other week, and they're saying fairly similar. Their numbers for 2023 are a little bit lower, 2.7%. Their numbers for this year um, are good. They're saying 7.5%. But everyone's pretty much in the same ballpark. Yeah, Ali Alid from the IMF, they came out with some numbers about a month ago for the UAE. The... the the bone of contention, and we'll dig into this more in the show, is 2023. Because UAE Central Bank now, 3.9%. That's consensus. Katija and her team are, are around that figure. IMF, Ali, has said, we think around 4% for the non-hydrocarbon economy for the UAE next year. The outlier is the economy minister, Abdullah bin Tuk, who came out just last week, 10 days ago, saying he thinks next year could be better than this year and the UAE needs 7% growth a year to hit its target of doubling the economy by 2031. So that's the bone of contention 2023. Will it be another mega boom or just a very strong year? And to be honest, 
they aren't bad options, aren't they, given what's happening around the world? This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Anyway, the countdown to the end of the year is also the countdown towards some emiratization targets having new penalties and consequences here in the UAE. Very pleased to be joined in the studio now by the emiratization expert, Talib Hashem. He's the managing director of TBH Advisory and a partner in the talent platform, Sadara. Talib, it's lovely to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So the clock is ticking. Has yes. it meant that your phone is buzzing? Are more companies getting in touch with you to find out how to meet these targets? Yes, yes. 12 days to go. So we have 12 days to go until the uh, deadline. Um, and yes, we've had um, we, we've been having quite a lot of t- um, inquiries from employers. And I have to say, I haven't seen so many recruiters and HR managers in panic mode since a very long time. So yes, interesting times. What kind of conversations are companies having with you? What questions are they asking? The obvious question is, how can we attract nationals to jobs that are perceived as non-traditional to locals? Such as? Um, so we had a restaurant approach us and they said, right, we are a restaurant. Where can we hire Emiratis in restaurants? Uh, we had another company that was... Um, those looking for data scientists and was thinking, right, where can we find MRITs who are data scientists? So you can see that that's one of the questions. But interestingly enough, the other question I have been getting from employers is, right, right now we need to get buy-in from senior leadership and management and we need to understand nationalization from a broader perspective and implement it strategically. So can you talk to us about how can we develop our nationalization strategy, so to speak? Uh, can you come in and speak to our senior leadership and get them to understand, you know, why is this important and how can they derive value from the whole process? So that's an um, th- that's another question again. And the other is how can we retain Emiratis? How can we keep them in the job? And I think that's. The other bigger cons- uh, concern employers have to start uh, wrapping their heads around. Because this is companies, uh, I'm putting this very loosely, that are over 50. Uh, yes. People in the private sector have to look at 2% being an Emirati uh, or you start paying fines. And there's also um, some, some bonuses for those that yes. hit and exceed targets. Yeah. Can you find the talent? How easy is it to find the talent for these so roles? First, something very important I have to highlight. It's 2% a year. A lot of employers, the perception is, okay, it's 2%, you know, we'll pay the fine and that's it. It's accumulative. It's 2% a year until 2026. So this is something really important. It's obvious to a lot of employers, but some get carried away. In terms of finding Emiratis, there are, there are Emiratis job seekers. The other side of the conversation from the Emirati side is that you have Emiratis, not only fresh graduates or ju- uh, junior level, but you have experienced Emiratis who've been out of work for around three years. And I get these stories and I hear them and very common. And for them is employers are not really interested in reaching out to us. So the question of employers is how can we get to Emiratis? Emiratis are available. You have to just tap into the network. You have to be creative about how you promote um, uh, not only your employer brand, but the job adverts as well. Um, and, and, 
and reach out to them. It's it's a long, it, it's a whole workshop that I deliver in terms of how can employers do that. Why do you think the the gap is there? Why do you think the, that we're having to put these targets in place at all? This is something I mentioned. This this is an article coming out soon uh, in the next two days, and I mention I write about it and I say. The gap is one, a gap that's driven by fear and perception from both sides, right? There's fear from Emirati about the private sector, job security, dealing with the diversity that is there that they are uncommon about, and all the other stories that they hear from the Emiratis who had, who didn't have such a positive experience. They don't get positive stories from Emiratis who've served in the private sector like me for so long. Um, so there is that. And then on the other side, there is also perceptions from employers that Emiratis don't want to work the long hours. They demand higher salaries. Uh, they want to get uh, uh, promoted fast. So the gap really is driven by perception. The other reason is, you know, for so long, the private sector has uh, been perceived and sometimes at the fault of the private sector is this isolated island, you know, the private in, in the country. Because the private sector employs barely 5% Emiratis, barely 5% Emiratis. And the majority of the workers are non-Emiratis. So for so long, the dynamic of the relationship has been we are the private sector, we're here for commercials and profit, and we're not to be expected to contribute towards, you know, things like nationalization. So... Because this has gone on for so years, that is why we're seeing a lot of this panic and shock and debates on social media, radio, and, 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 and in person. Because the ministry now has come around and said, after summer, right after summer they announced, right, 50, employer, 50 employees and more, you're eligible to the target. We've got one minute left with you. Beyond the targets and the, yeah. the penalties and the incentives, what's the bigger solution, Talib, the big picture solution? I think the big picture is to speak the language the private sector speaks the best, and that is the language of value and profit. If employers look at, right, this is a segment of population, how can we derive value from them? What kind of value can they bring to our company um, if we hire them? I think the conversation changes from numbers and every problem that we say we have to value. And big example is the banking sector. The banking sector is, is the biggest example. Right? Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Well, he's not a mystery man in the studio because we spoke to him about five minutes ago, but we didn't expect to have him back so soon. Normally, we wait a month or two between guests. Uh, Talib Hashim didn't even make it out the building. He didn't even make it as far as the lifts before Tom went and collared him because we've had so many questions oh. for you asking to clarify um, what's happening with the amortisation targets that uh, come into force um, as the year turns. Talib Hashim, Managing Director of TBH Advisory and Partner at the talent platform Sadara, has very sportingly uh, not gone and got a coffee but stepped back into the studio. Talib, thank you. Thank you. So, people have sent in questions. You're going to stay with us for, for another uh, six or seven minutes to answer them. And the, the, the one we've got the most is the clarification of the, the rule, this, this 2% for companies over 50 people. People are saying, I thought it had to be some jobs, skilled workers. What actually does it apply to? It actually applies to skilled workers. Um, so that is good news for companies that have blue-collar workers, a good number of blue-collar wor- uh, blue workers. 
it applies to skilled workers. One, tip, one word of advice, because uh, we had an inquiry from one of the companies that recruited, had a good percentage of blue-collar workers. And uh, when they were asked to Im uh, implement the percentage, the quotas, it was um, across the board. So it's very important that you're clear when you're speaking to the government, to the Ministry of HR and Emeritization, about the number of skilled workers that you have and that you explain the nature of your business uh, and be very clear on that. And that's one of the other questions we're getting about what kind of jobs. And I know the ministry has been very keen on making sure that they are genuine jobs with genuine prospects and development. Yes, yeah. They are, the, the ministry has a skilled workers list that uh, the employers can go through. Uh, it's very extensive. Um, but the roles are the roles that you would have for skilled workers um, who, um, you know, have a degree, a high school degree, um, a minimum. Um, and something, another thing that is also very important and uh, speaks to the controversy that happened recently that I would call Sandwich Gate. Was a, <laughs> Sorry. I call it Sandwich Gate. Uh, so that's, that's my own term. So it's, it's a global franchise that operates through a regional company here that advertised jobs for sandwich makers. Now that became very controversial and created um, a debate um, between the community. And you had a lot of Emiratis feeling offense about it. So the role of sandwich makers is not really skilled. And um, the company got into a lot of hot water uh, where you had the public prosecution actually open an investigation into that. So it's very important that there's a degree of sensibility and logic and understanding of, you know, not only what are roles that are um, suited for national, but they are skilled as well. Uh, we've got um, actually one message coming in from someone saying, look, I'm a fresh graduate Emirati looking for, for jobs. What does this mean for me? Well, as a if you're a fresh graduate in Marathi, it means you are at the top of priority list for a lot of employers that uh, are in the country. So one way of doing it is not only approaching employers through the different channels, but also approaching them through NAFIS, uh, uh, registering yourself. So what NAFIS does, it um, basically shares your, your list and your name with other companies. So it's very interesting, good times for you, but you have to be proactive as a fresh graduate in terms of seeking out jobs, attending interviews and presenting yourself well. There's, um, once an employee has been hired, the scheme doesn't stop there, does it? What does the, the ministry want to, to see in terms of um, what kind of, and again, we get back to what kind of jobs people are given, but, but uh, development and career prospects? No, well, the, the scheme doesn't stop. So you have a number of programs um, which actually support Emiratis. So the, there's the salary, the wage subsidies program, there's the apprenticeship program, uh, uh, job training program. What the ministry wants to see is that these Emiratis are retained uh, in the private sector and actually there's career progression for them to take on critical roles. Um, and that is very important. Now, it's something really important to draw a distinction. This low is slightly different in terms of how it's implemented um, when it comes to private sector mainland companies and the banking and financial sector. So I think the banking and financial sector has it a little bit worse in terms of complexity. So while the mainland has to comply with numbers and quotas, straightforward, get us numbers, 
the banking sector has to apply what I call quality amortization. So it's a point system. So it's not only numbers, but also shows career progression, shows how many Emiratis are you hiring for critical positions, not just hiring them for low-level positions and so forth. Yeah. And we've also been asked what you meant by the numbers accumulating. Are they also compounding? How do companies need to do the maths on this? Because company sizes change as well, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's 2% a year. It's, it's a compounding uh, percentage every year until 2026. So what I hear from companies is very interesting. Here's some, someone told me that um, some companies have made their mind that they'll pay the fine and it's easier for them. So there's 6,000 dirhams per person. Yeah, yeah. that's 6,000 dirhams. It, it might seem an easy solution for now. For the long term, it's very bad financial decision. One, there are implications of you being a repeat offender, first of all. Uh, and it implicate, um, the implications with your work permits and your standing with the ministry. The other thing is, guess what? If you pay the fines today or this year, you still have to comply with another 2% next year. So... Uh, it's a compound 2% every year until 2026. Yeah, just got another quick question that's come in with regards to the NAFIS scheme at the moment. Um, the question, fairly straightforward, uh, is NASA, if, is it um, uh, compulsory uh, to join up or register with NAFIS or is that a choice for companies at the moment? Well, the culture is compulsory. Okay, you call in, it's compulsory. Now, if I'm an employer, NAFIS is actually... A great news for me, mm. because by joining NAFIS, you actually tap into the incentives and the benefits NAFIS offers you. So the wage subsidies, apprentice, uh, the, the merit programs, etc. So it is not really compulsory to join NAFIS, but... Highly encouraged. Highly encouraged. Yeah. Good point. Okay, hope that answers that question. Thank you very much indeed, Joanna, for sending that one through to us. Yeah, Talib Hashem is Managing Director of TBH Advisory and a partner at Sadara. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are discussing the future of one Elon Musk. You just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, stand. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Yeah, Twitter users have voted in favour of Elon Musk stepping down as the platform's chief executive after the billionaire ran a poll on his future. Total of 57.5% voted uh, yes after Mr Musk asked his 122 million followers whether he should stand down. Question now is, will he stay or will he go? Uh, let's ask that question or pose that question to tech expert, founder and CEO of Karma, Mazen Nahawi, who's been kind enough to join us live on the line this morning. Uh, Mazen, thanks very much indeed for your, for your time this morning. Will he stay? Will he go? He'll go. Uh, he does have a couple of other day jobs which require him to go back <laughs> and give his full attention. And he has said clearly he would abide by the poll. Um, I can't see him staying beyond... At the end of Q1 2023. So it won't be within the next 24 hours. This will be something that will happen at some point next year. I mean, he likes drama, but even this one requires a proper transition. In terms of why he's done this, can we, can we read into that 
well, your, your, your previous answer. This is a man that loves a bit of drama. Is this just pure Musk? It's definitely pure Musk, but I do believe he understands he has hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value he needs to manage in Tesla and SpaceX and now actually in OpenAI and ChatGPT, uh, which has made major headlines and not many people understand that he's actually behind one of the most exciting technologies, which may be threatening the jobs of millions of writers around the world. Twitter is a small piece of his value pie, and he needs to give his attention to where the heart of that wealth is coming from. What's it done for the Twitter brand? Yet another sort of hiccup, as it were, another hurdle has been put onto the road since uh, Elon Musk expressed interest in taking over Twitter. Has this affected the brand? It's definitely affected the brand. I think from a business point of view, from an investment point of view, we look at instability and the lack of a coherent plan. Um, stock prices going down, uh, and even in Elon's words, the possibility of a bankruptcy. Unlikely, but it's definitely a possibility. However, from a user point of view, there's at least 25 million new users on Twitter. Um, it's become an exciting place to be, and there are many more voices on it. Um, so I think we need to differentiate between what an investor would look at, which is a bit chaotic, and what a user would look at, and that's a bit of an exciting space. As I understand, you're currently in Riyadh at the moment, and that sort of prompted my next question, because last time we got eyeballs on Mr Musk, uh, he was down at a football game, not a million miles from us all here, over in Doha, I turned up to the final of the Football World Cup. Now, as far as I know, Elon's not a huge football fan, so... Can we read into his presence here in the region? And of course, close neighbours Saudi Arabia being significant investors into Twitter as to what maybe one of the reasons this poll was posted? There's definitely a causality there. We have no confirmation, of course, but um, you know, Qatar has been very sensitive to its reputation. There has been a tidal wave of criticism, largely unfair, around how it has managed the World Cup. And I'm sure the Qataris are thinking, how can we manage our reputation better and reach a broader global audience? Many of the critics are what you would describe as very progressive liberal types in Western European capitals who are on Twitter. Um, they will definitely be talking to Elon about possibly an investment or some kind of arrangement, maybe through normal marketing means and advertising and engagement to perhaps be involved somehow. Will his private jet be dropping by at the Four Seasons here in Riyadh? And will he be talking to Prince Walid? Why not? I mean, it would make perfect sense. Uh, Twitter is hemorrhaging cash. He needs support, uh, not only from a liquidity perspective, but from his shareholders. If not Elon, then who, I suppose, is the next question. If Elon goes Q1 next year or maybe even sooner, um, there's no apparent wingman uh, that he's got waiting uh, at Twitter. Who would who would get this? Who would who would get the job? And and, and who would want the job? <laughs> um, I can't see anyone voluntarily jumping into it uh, without a proper funding mechanism being put in place. I think if there is proper funding, you'll have a long line of people who'd be excited to take the job. But I think the one thing Elon needs to do before he steps down or if you'd like steps sideways, uh, would be to make sure that he has the funding for the long term. Uh, as you say, Tom, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Even his top lieutenants are largely spread thin among a variety of different projects. So I don't think any one of them would take it. Uh, there has been talk of Cheryl Sandberg maybe being tempted out of whatever she's 
needs to be tempted out of at the moment. Anything in that? I, I don't see it. I mean, there's always a possibility. But again, uh, she is a strong corporate leader. Uh, some have described her as a cutthroat bean counter. She's looking at the PL and balance sheet, and she won't look. She won't like what she's looking at without funding. I don't think you'll get a proper serious CEO. And you need somebody who could deal with possibly the world's most demanding boss? Definitely. Um, and that shareholder group is a very difficult shareholder group. It's not just Elon. Everyone who owns a share in Twitter is a difficult person um, in their own way. Um, and Elon will step down as CEO, but that doesn't mean he's going away. He'll be sticking around. Yeah, and I, I suppose that will be one of the concerns for a, the board, B, the new and incoming CEO and whatever structure, management structure they put in at Twitter, is that how do you keep your owner quiet? You don't. <laughs> you can't keep <laughs> Elon Musk quiet on Twitter. Uh, he bought the platform for his voice to be heard and he will be heard. Quick one, Mazen, about sort of just Elon Musk in general. We were reflecting a little bit earlier on about, you know, many years ago or for several years, it's been about the businesses. The businesses have done the talking. The businesses have made the headlines. In more recent years, it's become more about Elon Musk himself. Cause for concern? Not really. I think most California Silicon Valley CEOs have a point to make. They're becoming much more political uh, in their own way. Um, they're trying to make a point about whatever they believe in, whether it's, you know, free speech absolutism or whatever. Uh, and I think we're going to be in a world where we find many more Elon Musks coming up. Uh, I think he's a trendsetter and there will be many others like him. Just finally, Mazen, before I let you go, um, I'm, I'm putting two and two together now here. I'm probably coming up with 84, but um, possibility of Elon stopping off in Riyadh, you in Riyadh. Have you dusted off the, uh, the, the CV for the CEO job? <laughs> well, I have six children, so I'm not taking that job. <laughs> you don't need another one, that's for sure, managing Elon yeah, Musk. <laughs> Mazen, all the best, my friend. Good to see you, as always. Mazen Harwe is the founder and the CEO of Karma, uh, joining us live on the line this morning. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.